Step aside, miss, or I'll have you arrested for interfering with the police officer. Oh, no, hold on. I've seen TV. I know you can't come in here without a warrant or a writ or something. Cease and desist all commerce order, seizure of premises and chattels, ban on the use of public utilities for non-licensed waste handlers, and a federal entry and inspection order. Vince, there's one more test I'd like to perform. Egon! I tried to stop them. He says they have a warrant. Excuse me, this is private property. Shut this off. Shut these all off. I'm warning you, turning off these machines would be extremely hazardous. I'll tell you what's hazardous. You're facing federal prosecution for at least a half a dozen environmental violations. Now, either you shut off these beams or we shut them off for you. Try to understand, this is a high-voltage laser containment system. Simply turning it off would be like dropping a bomb in the city. Don't patronize me. I'm not grotesquely stupid like the people you built. At ease, officer. I'm Peter Venkman. I think there's just been a slight misunderstanding, and I want to cooperate in any way that I can. Forget it, Venkman. You had your chance to cooperate, but you thought it'd be more fun to insult me. Well, now it is my turn, wise-ass. He wants to shut down the protection grid, Peter. You shut that thing down, and we are not going to be held responsible for whatever happens. No, we won't be held responsible. Don't shut it off. I'm warning you. Um, I've never seen anything like this before. I don't... I'm not interested in your opinion. Just shut it off. My friend, don't be a jerk. Step aside. If he does that again, you can shoot him. You do your job, pencil neck. Don't tell me how to do mine. Thank you, officer. Shut it off! this movie my name is dana buckler and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen be sure to follow us on twitter and instagram at how is this movie like us on facebook at facebook.com slash how is this movie you can always email me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com and finally if you're enjoying the show please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen ghostbusters now there's a movie that i should have done years ago In fact, I had planned on it. When this podcast first was getting started, I had a list of movies to do, and I think Ghostbusters was number two. But for some reason or another, it just didn't happen. Now, in October of 2016, we've been through a whirlwind of controversy surrounding the remake that was released in July of this year. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But first, I want to talk about all the principal players involved in the 1984 classic, how they all came together, how they all met. Let's start with who I consider the architect of Ghostbusters to be, Dan Aykroyd. Now, Aykroyd was born July 1st, 1961 in Ottawa, Canada. His father served as policy advisor to then Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, one of Canada's most revered politicians. Interestingly enough, at the age of 17, Dan Aykroyd had strongly considered becoming a priest. Now, this is a decision that he abandoned once he started going to college. 
He did drop out of college, though, once he discovered he had a passion for two things, blues music and comedy. And on any given night in Toronto, you could find Dan Aykroyd in the early 1970s playing music at local venues. It was while living in Toronto that Aykroyd met an up-and-coming comedian and writer named Lorne Michaels. By this point, Michaels had a small comedy sketch show called The Hart and Lorne Terrific Hour, and Michaels asked Aykroyd to join the cast. Unfortunately, the show was short-lived, but it was enough for Dan Aykroyd to decide to make a serious run at comedy. And in 1973, he enrolled in the Second City Comedy Troupe. He would perform at both locations in Toronto and Chicago. And throughout his time at Second City, he would continue to keep in touch with Lorne Michaels. Michaels was born in Canada as well and received an English degree from the University of Toronto. After graduating college, he joined the Canadian Broadcast Corporation, otherwise known as the CBC, first as a writer, then as an on-air personality. He then moved to Los Angeles, where he began working as a writer on the sketch comedy show Laugh-In, and also writing for The Phyllis Diller Show. Now, even though Lorne Michaels was finding modest success writing for television in Los Angeles, he did move back to Toronto in the early 1970s. Things were going well for him, and in late 1974, he received a phone call from Dick Ebersol, then head of late-night programming for NBC. Dick Ebersol oversaw one of the most popular shows on television, The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, which aired Monday through Friday on NBC. It was amongst one of the highest rated shows on television. Interestingly, though, from 1965 to 1975, NBC would air sort of a best of Carson every Saturday and Sunday night. But by early 1974, Johnny Carson wanted NBC to stop airing those episodes. The reason was simple. Carson wanted to take a little bit more time off throughout the year, and he figured that these reruns would play better on nights that he wanted to take off. Carson was the king of NBC. Hell, he was probably the king of television, and he pretty much got what he wanted. So this decision would leave a gap in programming on the weekend. Then president of NBC, Herbert Schlosser, was tasked with finding a replacement. He reached out to Ebersol and said, we need to come up with a new show for Saturday nights. Ebersol, in turn, contacted his friend Lauren Michaels, and the two created Saturday Night Live. Well, it was originally entitled NBC Saturday Nights. This was because sports personality Howard Cosell had a show on Saturday night called Saturday Night Live. SNL, as it would become to be known, debuted on October 11, 1975. Among the principal cast members were John Belushi, Gilda Radner, Chevy Chase, and Lorne Michaels' friend from Toronto, Dan Aykroyd. Saturday Night Live wasn't a hit out of the gate. In fact, Lorne Michaels had to fight very hard with the executives at NBC to keep the show on the air and even get a second season. As the show limped into 1976, there was a major shakeup. Chevy Chase left in November of 1976, and Lorne Michaels scrambled to find a replacement. At the advice of John Belushi, Michaels auditioned a then-unknown comedian named Bill Murray. Bill Murray was born in Evanston, Illinois, September 21, 1950. He is one of eight siblings. By the time he was in high school, Bill Murray had his hands in everything. He was acting in high school plays. He was the lead singer of a teen rock band called the Dutch Masters. And he also worked as a golf caddy to help pay the tuition for the private school he attended. After graduation, he enrolled at the University of Regis in Denver, Colorado and took pre-med classes. Didn't take long for Murray to realize that this was not the career path that he wanted. And he promptly dropped out of college and moved back to Illinois. So what did he do after moving back to Illinois? Well, he began focusing on a new career, professional drug smuggler. Yes, you heard me right. On his 20th birthday, he was arrested at Chicago's O'Hare Airport with 10 pounds of marijuana, which he intended to sell. He was caught when asked by a fellow passenger who was sitting next to him what he did for a living. Murray jokingly replied that he was a drug smuggler. 
The passenger secretly reported that to the flight attendant, who in turn reported that to the captain, who in turn reported it to the police who were standing by when Murray disembarked from the plane. For this, Murray would receive years of probation. Realizing that drug smuggling was not going to be a viable career choice, Bill Murray focused his attention on another passion, comedy. And in the early 1970s, he enrolled at the Second City Comedy Troupe in Chicago. Now, there are two more people that I need to mention that were members of the Second City Troupe in the early 1970s. First is Harold Ramis. He was born in Chicago on November 21st, 1944. In 1966, while attending Washington University in St. Louis, Ramis discovered that he had a real knack for comedy writing. After university, he found himself back in Chicago, first working as a substitute teacher, then becoming a freelance writer for the Chicago Daily News, and also he became the joke editor for Playboy magazine. By 1968, wanting to really pursue his comedic writing to another level, he joined the Second City Comedy Group in Chicago. Feeling overwhelmed by all the assignments that were being handed down to him by the Chicago Daily News and Playboy magazine, he took a break from the Second City and returned in 1972. It was in 72 that he was introduced to the new star of Second City, John Belushi. Belushi was born July 24, 1944 in Chicago. After high school, he founded his own comedy troupe, the West Compass Trio, before being asked to join the Second City in 1971. It was a short time after joining Second City that Belushi met Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. Now, Second City has always served as a sort of a stepping stone to something bigger and better. And in 1973, Harold Ramis, along with Bill Murray and John Belushi, moved to New York to start working with the National Lampoon's comedy group, working specifically on a show called the National Lampoon's Radio Hour. Like I mentioned in 1976, after the quick departure of Chevy Chase from Saturday Night Live, Bill Murray was asked to join the show after his audition. He would now be working side-by-side with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Now, there's one more piece of the puzzle that brings us to the whirlwind of movies that we're going to follow over the next few years. Harold Ramis helped to write the screenplay for National Lampoon's Animal House. Now, this is where Ivan Reitman comes into the picture. Reitman served as producer on Animal House. He was born October 27, 1946 in Czechoslovakia. His mother was a survivor of the Auschwitz concentration camp and his father an underground resistance fighter. The Reitman family immigrated to Canada in 1950. Reitman himself attended McMaster University where he received a bachelor's degree in music but also took several film courses. And after college, he quickly found work with a local TV network in Toronto called City TV. This is where he would meet Dan Aykroyd for the first time. Now that I've introduced you to all the major players, let's take a moment and look at how they all worked together in the early 1970s and 1980s. 1. Animal House, released 1978, written by Harold Ramis, produced by Ivan Reitman, starring John Belushi. We're in trouble. I just checked with the guys at the Jewish house, and they said that every one of our answers on the psych test were wrong. Everyone? Those assholes must have stolen the wrong fucking exam. Oh, God, look what just creeped in. Well, well, well. Looks like somebody forgot there's a rule against alcoholic beverages. In fraternities on probation. I didn't get that, son. What was that? I said, uh, what a shame that a few bad apples have to spoil a good time for everyone by breaking the rules. Put a sock on it, boy, or else you'll be out of here like shit through a goose. Yes, sir. Now, have you boys seen your grade point average yet? Well, have you? I have, sir. I know it's a little below par. It's more than a little below par, Mr. Hoover. It stinks. It's the lowest on campus. 
It's the lowest in Faber history. Uh, well, sir, we're hoping that our midterm grades will really help our average. <laughs> Laugh now. Because you clowns have been on double secret probation since the beginning of this semester. Double secret probation? And that means one more slip up, one more mistake. And this fraternity of yours has had it at Faber. Two, Meatballs, 1979, written by Harold Ramis, directed by Ivan Reitman, starring Bill Murray. This is the best damn food in the whole Two Pines area. Not surprised you found this place. I had you pegged for a gourmet first time I met you. You know, that's a smart move, bringing a suitcase. You don't want to be leaving a lot of valuable socks and underwear around camp where people can rustle around in them when you're out on the town. Thank you. You like ketchup? I'm going away. You going to Vegas? If you're going to Vegas, man, I would be up for it because I love that town. I'm a party guy. I love that town. I don't think they want me around. Are you talking about the soccer heads back there? Well, that's life in the fast-paced, slam-bang, live-on-the-razor's-edge, laugh-in-the-face-of-death world of junior league soccer. I'm serious. I never played the game before. I tried to tell them. What? You tried to tell And they... Who was it? I'll get them. I'll get them with this Swiss Army knife. The Swiss trained me to kill, and I will do it. I will grab these guys by the neck... Take the toothpick and stick it right in between their teeth. And then I'll slap them around the head a couple of times. They'll go out for just a couple of seconds. They'll be unconscious. And while they're doing that, I'll go for the corkscrew. And I'll grab them. And I'll take that corkscrew. And I will stick it right into the voice box. I would twist that mofo. I would twist it into his voice box. And rip that thing. Rip it out. And he'll talk like this for the rest of his life. I don't want to hurt anyone. I just want them to like me. Why? You make one good friend a summer, and you're doing pretty well. Three, Caddyshack, released 1980, written and directed by Harold Ramis, starring Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. So I jump ship in Hong Kong, and I make my way over to Tibet, and I get on as a looper at a course over there in Himalayas. A looper? A looper. You know, a caddy, a looper. Jack. So I tell him I'm a pro jack. And who do you think they give me? The Dalai Lama himself. The 12th son of the Lama. The flowing robes, the grace, bald. Striking. So I'm on a first tee with him. I give him the driver. He hauls off and whacks one. Big hitter, the Lama. Long. Into a 10,000-foot crevice right at the base of this glacier. Do you know what the Lama says? No. Gunga. Gunga, 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 gunga. So we finish 18, and he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know. And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me. Which is nice. Four, The Blues Brothers, 1980, based on an SNL skit starring Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're sure glad to be here at Kokomo tonight. We're the good old 
Brothers, boys, band from Chicago. I sure hope you like our show. I'm Elwood. This is my brother, Jake. Well, my temperature's rising and my feet on the floor. Hey, why'd they turn off the lights? Maybe they blow a fuse. I don't think so, man. Those lights are off on purpose. Okay, we gotta figure out something these people like and fast. Hey, I've got it. Remember the theme from Rawhide? The old favorite, Rowdy Yates. What key? Hey, good country key. Rawhide and A. Five, Stripes, released 1981, written by Harold Ramis, directed by Ivan Reitman, starring Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. Okay, Mr. Push-Ups, let's hear your story. Chicks dig me, because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. But now I know why I have always lost women to guys like you. I mean, it's not just the uniform. It's the stories that you tell. So much fun and imagination. Lee Harvey, you are a madman. When you stole that cow and your friend tried to make it with the cow, (laughs) I want to party with you, cowboy. (laughs) The two of us together, forget it. I'm going to go on a limb here. I'm going to volunteer my leadership to this platoon. An army without leaders is like a foot without a big toe. And Sergeant Hoka isn't always going to be there to be that big toe for us. I think that we owe a big round of applause to our newest, bestest buddy and big toe, Sergeant Hoka. <laughs> well, okay, hotshot. We're gonna see what kind of soldier you are. Revelies on five hundred. Now, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi were very close friends. Besides the time they would spend together on SNL and the Blues Brothers movies, they would often spend a lot of their downtime together when they weren't working. In early 1982, Dan Aykroyd began working on a screenplay about two paranormal ghost hunters. Aykroyd had long been a believer in the paranormal. And the first version of this script was to have the ghost hunters be played by Aykroyd and John Belushi. They would travel the world and even go into parallel dimensions. Aykroyd pitched the story to Ivan Reitman, who told him that he would direct the film, but only if he changed the setting to something that could be a little more filmable. There was no way that they'd ever be able to secure a budget big enough to handle what was on the original screenplay written by Aykroyd. At Reitman's suggestion... Aykroyd took the script to Harold Ramis. Ramis read the treatment and agreed to help him rewrite the story, and they immediately changed the setting to New York City. Things were really starting to happen. 
However, in March of 1982, the whole project would be put on an indefinite hold. This is ABC News Nightline. Reporting from Washington, Ted Koppel. Good evening. For most of his television career, at least, John Belushi careened at a breakneck pace between the irreverent and the outrageous. It was not only his comedy that was unpredictable, there was always a strong sense that the act was a reflection of the man, and the man a bizarre reflection of a generation. Now John Belushi is dead. Not perhaps a superstar of international range, but an especially talented member of an especially talented group that raised television satire to new heights. What they did, those not ready for primetime players, and what John Belushi did with a special zest bordering on vengeance, was to strike a loud and responsive note among millions of sympathetic but infinitely more inhibited viewers. He was 33 when he died this morning. The death of John Belushi was tragic on so many levels. At some point down the road, I will do an episode on his career. Dan Aykroyd was naturally devastated by the loss of his close friend, and it would have been completely understandable if he decided to permanently shelve the Ghostbusters script. But in early 1983, the project was back. Aykroyd, Ramis, and Reitman knew the script would need a major polish before they could begin production. In the meantime, they began to search for the perfect actor to cast in the lead role. Offers went out to Chevy Chase and Michael Keaton. Both passed. Reitman, who had worked with Bill Murray in both Meatballs and Stripes, approached Murray and asked him to take a look at the working script. Murray said he might be interested. Might be. See, this was enough for Reitman and Aykroyd to take a meeting at Columbia Pictures. They pitched the story, adding that they had Bill Murray attached to star. They had the writer of Caddyshack and the director of Stripes. Columbia was on board right away, but the big question for Columbia was how much money would be involved? Reitman threw out a number right there on the spot. He said we could do this whole thing for $25 million. And to his shock, Columbia said, sure, let's do it. There was one condition. The movie had to be ready for a summer 1984 release. This gave them less than a year to finish the script, cast the film, shoot the film, pre-production, everything. Now, in a move that has now become legendary, Ivan Reitman, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramis locked themselves away at a house in Martha's Vineyard, working on the shooting script for two weeks. Rumors are abound about the extracurricular activities and vices they took part in while finishing the script. With the script done and the shooting schedule now looming, the trio went into overdrive with casting. For the role of Winston Zedmore, Eddie Murphy was cast in the role, but due to Beverly Hills Cop filming going long over schedule, he had to drop out. When the actor Ernie Hudson read the script, he so wanted to play the part of Winston that he offered to do it for half of his usual salary. The role of Lewis Tully was intended to be a much more conservative business type. The part had been written with John Candy in mind. However, John Candy declined the part. In the late 1970s, Harold Ramis had worked on the popular TV show SCTV. One of the stars of the show was Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis was offered and accepted the role of Lewis Tully. His character was purposely rewritten to be more of a geek nerd personality. For the role of Dana Barrett, Sigourney Weaver auditioned for Ivan Reitman. She had read in the script that she would be turned into a possessed dog, and during the audition, she began to act like she was a dog, getting on all fours, barking, and attacking the chair in which Reitman was sitting at. Reitman was in total shock and asked her to never do that again. Three days later, he called her and told her she had the part. Now, halfway through filming of Ghostbusters, it was brought to the attention of the producers that there had been a live-action TV show in the mid-70s called The Ghostbusters. 
this newfound information could have been a total disaster because the studio had already spent a lot of money on logos, which were plastered all over different shooting locations. There was a scene with hundreds and hundreds of extras. They were all chanting the name Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters. Now, I want to be clear. The 1975 show shared name only. In the TV show in question, quote-unquote Ghostbusters drove around in a vintage car with a full-size gorilla as part of the team. And I'm not making that up. Columbia Pictures was eventually able to strike a deal with Filmation, the studio that owned the rights to the TV show. As we get further into the history of Ghostbusters, that won't be the only time that Filmation will come up. Once principal photography wrapped up in February of 1984, with a pending summer release date looming, the main issue now facing the production was the over 200 special effects shots that the script called for. What nobody planned on was that all the major effects studios, including ILM, were all tied up with other projects. Ivan Reitman came up with a quick and radical idea. If they couldn't find a special effects house, they would create one. They first approached special effects guru Richard Unlin and told him the idea. He agreed. Columbia Pictures liked the idea but was only willing to foot half the bill for starting a production house. Reitman would have to find another studio to put up the other half of the money. Luckily, at the exact same time, MGM Studios was also desperately in need of finding an effects house for their upcoming film, 2010, The Year We Made Contact, and they were happy to put up the money needed. The first special effect created by Richard Unlin was that of the Ghost Slimer, which was a direct tribute to John Belushi. In Ghostbusters, the special effects, Richard Edlin, of course, is just the master, isn't he? He is great. They're just fantastic. But I'm wondering, for you actors, and especially with a comedy and special effects, how do you know where you're going with the timing? Uh, well... I remember one sequence where we, that we see a ghost in the, deep in the stacks of the New York Public Library, which early in the film, and we had a tremendous fear reaction. We were supposed to run backwards down this hall, looking like the Three Stooges, basically. And all we were reacting to was an electrician standing there waving a paper plate. And uh, it's very strange, but they can help you out with mechanical effects, like whenever we. We see a big apparition in the film. They're also blasting us with uh, compressed air, which can help when they hit you with 150 pounds of air right in the face. You know. Gets your attention. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> <laughs> in May of 1984, a full month before the release of the film, Columbia Pictures released the soundtrack to Ghostbusters. They also released the theme song, Ghostbusters, by Ray Parker Jr. The song quickly shot to number one on the charts, and analysts at the time said the popularity of the Ghostbusters song added an additional $20 million to the box office take. Ghostbusters opened number one at the box office in June 1984 and wound up becoming a cultural phenomenon. The phrase, who are you going to call, was everywhere. Critics championed the film, and it currently sits with a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. These men are consummate snowball artists. They use sense and nerve gases to induce hallucinations. People think they're seeing ghosts. And they call these bozos who conveniently show up to deal with the problem with a fake electronic light show. Everything was fine with our system until the power grid was shut off by Dickless here. They caused an explosion. Is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. Well, that's what I heard. This city hall. Now, what am I going to do here, John? What is this? All I know is that was no light show we saw this morning. I've seen every form of combustion known to man. But this beats the hell out of me. The walls in the 53rd precinct were bleeding. 
How do you explain that? Good afternoon, gentlemen. Oh, your eminence. Uh, how are you, Lenny? You're looking good, Mike. We're in a real fix here. What do you think I should do? Lenny, officially, the church will not take any position on the religious implications of these uh, phenomena. Hmm. Personally, Lenny, I think it's a sign from God. But don't quote me on that. No, I think that's the smart move, Mike. Well, I'm not going to call a press conference and tell everyone to start praying. <clears throat> oh. I'm uh, Winston Zettimore, Yana. Look, I've only been with the company for a couple of weeks. But I got to tell you, these things are real. Since I joined these men, I have seen shit that'll turn you white. Well, you could believe, Mr. Pecker. My name is Peck. Or you could accept the fact that this city is headed for a disaster of biblical proportion. What do you mean, biblical? What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Yes. Mayor. Real wrath of God type stuff. Exactly. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies. Rivers and seas boiling. Forty years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes. The dead rising from the grave. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Enough, I get the point. Ghostbusters would be nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Original Song and Visual Effects. In the fall of 1984, singer-songwriter Huey Lewis sued Ray Parker Jr. for plagiarism, citing that Ghostbusters copied the same melody of Huey Lewis's song, I Want a New Drug. The case was eventually settled out of court. Let's take a listen, and you tell me. First, Ghostbusters. Here is I Want a New Drug. Part two of this extended look at the Ghostbusters franchise, we'll look at the very popular Ghostbusters cartoon. We'll find out why the most popular film of the 1980s took five years to get a sequel. We'll then find out why it took more than 25 years to get a third film. And we're going to spend some time looking at the controversy surrounding the Ghostbusters remake. My name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.
You seem, Harold, I don't know you that well, but the, the times I've been around you, you don't seem as off the wall as Dan Aykroyd and as Bill Murray. Now, in actual fact, are you, and you're just, you know, giving me another side of, of Harold Ramis? Oh, I'm more on the wall than they are. It's definitely true. Uh, I think I have hidden somewhere deep inside me is an alter ego that's a lot like Bill's or Dan's or John Belushi. I mean, I admire those guys for the incredible courage it takes to, to be as crazy as they are. Um, I wish I was more like that. And I think the way I express it is in the things that I write you know, for them or with them and in the kinds of comedies that I do. I mean, people often seem surprised based on the films that I've worked on. They, they think that uh, people will say, oh, you're so much smarter than your films or you're so much more serious than your films. But uh, I think the films ref reflect the side of me that I don't really get to express. You know, I'm a, a husband and a father and... Uh, being a director, you know, requires that you act like everybody's father, you know, and like everyone's psychiatrist as well. So um, I, I don't get to act out a lot, and uh, I just channel it through the writing, I think. How do the others re treat you? Uh, I, I know you're one of the group, but then are they more apt to, when you speak, listen to what you say? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I know that in every... In every gang you've ever seen uh, on TV or in films, there's always a character who's called the professor or doc or specs, you know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm specs, you know. <laughs> the guy with the glasses is supposed to be smarter, so I get that kind of respect. You know? Harold, did you actually know John Belushi? Oh, quite well, yeah. We worked together on stage for oh, a year in Chicago in early 70s and then for a year here in New York at the National Lampoon, yeah. Of course, this book is coming out wired by Bob Woodward, who did All the President's Men, co-authored that with uh, Carl Bernstein. Uh, were you interviewed by Bob Woodward? Yeah, spent some time with Bob. Have you read the book or the no, excerpt? No, I'm hearing terrible things. People that really knew John the best and loved him the most are, are probably won't be pleased by this book. Square. Good guess, but wrong. Clear your head. All right? Tell me what you think it is. Is it a star? It is a star. <laughs> Very good. That's great. Okay? All right? Think hard. What is it? Circle. Close. Spot definitely wrong. Okay. All right. Ready? Yeah. All right. What is it? Figure eight. Incredible. That's five for five. You can't see these, can no, you? No, no. You're not cheating me, are you? No, I swear. They're just coming to me. <laughs> Okay. Nervous? Yes. I don't like this. You only have 75 more to go. Okay? What's this one? 
couple of wavy lines. Sorry, this isn't your lucky day. I know. Get a little tired of this. You volunteered, didn't you? We're paying you, aren't we? Yeah, but I didn't know you were going to be giving me electric shocks. What are you trying to prove here anyway? I'm studying the effect of negative reinforcement on ESP ability. The effect? I'll tell you what the effect is. It's pissing me off. Well, then maybe my theory is correct. You can keep the five bucks I've had. I will, mister. 